Wait, that's a thing? Never heard of it. Oh, you have no idea. This is Haven Space, a safe place for fantasies. Brought to you by sex coach and researcher Sarah Perry. Hi, folks. This is Sarah Perry, sex coach and researcher, and I'm here with my friend Dana Hamilton, who I met at the ASEX conference a few years ago, and who is an amazing person that I wanted to introduce you to. So uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Dana Hamilton. I am a sex columnist for Playboy. I was probably the only sex writer at ASECT, which is an organization of sex educators, counselors, and therapists. Um, so a lot of people were like, who on earth are you? Um, but yeah, so I have been a journalist for um, about a decade and a sex columnist for Playboy, uh, but I also write for a bunch of other outlets about sexuality, uh, body image, and eating disorder recovery. And a lot of my work um, involves tying together positive body image and developing positive body image so people can have the sex lives and dating experiences that they deserve. And something else that I do in addition to being a writer is I am an anti-diet dating coach. That's amazing. I think that that is the easiest opening line for the next kind of subject we should go on. Um, when we were setting up this interview, we were briefly discussing um, the things that we're passionate about that wanted to we wanted to make sure we brought up. And one of those things was um, body image, and especially as it relates to dating and how like forms of radical self love are important. But also, it's great to um, kind of take it with a grain of salt. Right. And I think common modern dating, uh, I don't want to say a tenant, but a rule, I guess, that was popularized by an, you know, a self-love icon, which is RuPaul. That's the epitome of living your truth and doing something that might be a little subversive and against the grain. And his advice always is, how can you love yourself? You know, you can't, you can't love anybody else until you love yourself. And what Sarah and I were kind of talking about uh, beforehand is I had a, like a very interesting conversation with a therapist this morning, someone else I'm gonna be collaborating with soon. And we were saying how that's a really toxic idea to talk about in modern dating because um, relationships can be healing. And so the, the goal doesn't need to be, I have to love myself before I start dating. The goal can be, I have to accept myself and date myself a little bit before I get into dating. And body image permeates dating so much because just think of swipe culture. We're, we're picking photos and we're being anxious about which photos we pick. The last thing that we want is for anyone to accuse us of not looking like our photos. We're basing attraction off of pretty much a visual and not very much else, especially on swiping apps that have very short and small amounts of text for a bio. It's a very, it can come across as a very superficial world. And when we grow up in a culture saturated with diet culture, that just heightens everything. It makes dating even more difficult. And so that's why it's even more important than ever to develop a positive body image because it really does, it permeates dating, but it permeates your job, it permeates your family life, it permeates everything. So once we start healing our relationships with our bodies, we can see that different facets of our life can grow and improve in ways that we could have never expected. Definitely. Um, I think 
that issue, that concept of self-love and like self-acceptance being the ultimate goal is super difficult in our society in mm-hmm. large ways because we are a project society. Everything is always a work in mm-hmm. progress. It doesn't matter if you're like an amazing, super buff bodybuilder, you're always looking for your next goal. We uh, want to run a marathon because there's a next step. We do the same sure. thing with income and with like the things we possess. There's right. always the next project. So right. it's important to realize that you don't have to treat yourself like a project. You can also like be okay where you are, but recognize that you will have growth inside or outside of relationships just as you're moving through life. Sure. And also, I mean, we, we can think of ourselves. I, I totally, like totally agree. I think that we are a goal oriented society and it's like, we put in a lot of effort in our schoolwork and we graduate, we put in a lot of effort in our job and we get promoted. And one thing that's really, really hard and for the population of people that I work with, which are formerly or currently eating disordered clients is that when you're eating disordered, you can put in a lot of work, quote unquote, you can engage in your symptoms and see changes in your body. And so what's really hard for people who have been through ED or currently in ED recovery is that love and dating are two things where you can put in a lot of work and your results aren't guaranteed. I really do believe that the universe will send us whoever we need to date when we date them. And that magic is not up to us, but there are ways to uh, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say present ourselves, but prepare ourselves in ways that make it so that we're vibrating at the frequency. We're operating at peak level in terms of attracting people who are worth our time, who are kind and respectful, who are loving towards us. And that happens when you work on developing a good relationship with your body. So I don't believe, and I think what quarantine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like quarantine really has made a lot of people slow down and recognize that like life isn't a race and we don't have to be so productive all the time. There's so much in just like sitting and being and accepting. And that is where a lot of hard work takes place. Like the act of doing nothing is something that so many people are struggling with, but is like such an important uh, lesson to learn. So I totally agree. I think that there are ways to like, I think having therapy and working on yourself, all those things are amazing and those things really matter. And then what people are finding and I hope continue to find more is we don't, no one needs to give a shit about like what, body size you are, what your weight is, the cat, like all these numbers that we're constantly thinking about, like all of that doesn't matter. That like, that is like sold to us under the guise of like health oriented, but no, that can lead to orthorexia. That can lead to anorexia. That can lead to bulimia. And there are, there are so many awesome tools out there that are helpful that help us grow and mature and develop as people. People think that the way to enlightenment, the way to happiness is diet culture. It's not. It's actually the slowing down and the acceptance and the, the working on yourself uh, with a therapist or a coach or, you know, improving the facets of your life that you want to improve. Yeah, I had a similar experience during quarantine. I did see, though, that for the first time, I think in a long time, everything that I, because I studied critical theory, so everything that I learned about 
you know, the way we've been enculturated to always be working harder and to Mm -hmm. basically vilify people who don't want to work so hard or literally do not have access to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. we treat them like lazy people or like they are not contributing or even the fact that we can consider that someone doesn't contribute because they sit at home and relax, um, right. creates this really damaging culture. And I'm seeing kind yes. of the blossoming of that, of us saying, you know what? I don't have to explain to anybody why right. I'm choosing to not show up for the zoom meeting for my kids. Right. I need to just be kind to myself. So maybe- yeah. And that's, I was going to say that that sounds like very much like intuitive living and intuitive like what I what I teach people is in intuitive eating you eat whatever you want whatever you want and the fear always is well I'm just going to go off the rails I'm just going to eat ice cream all day every day every meal and I'm like absolutely no one wants to crave that that much maybe the first couple days of intuitive eating you experiment with that and then you'll see your body intuitively knows what it needs your body will crave a large variety of foods and some of them are nutrition or nutrient dense and some of them aren't so, but they're all, they're all food and there's no good or bad. And so with, with quarantine, it's like, you don't want to take that call. You don't really have to, you don't feel like moving today. You don't really have to. And that the idea of a super like regimented disciplined life is like the way to go. It's like, no, honoring what your body wants and what your body needs translates into so many facets. And obviously it's going to translate to sex. How could it not? And what is more beautiful than having intuitive sex with people that you're intuitively dating? You're only showing up for people who are worth your time. You're only showing up for showing up for people who are kind, considerate, respectful, communicative. And that's the thing. I, I really want it to be a quality over quantity. And most dating coaches are like, your success is measured by how many dates you go on and how many people match with you and how many messages you get. And I'm like, that's cool. Are you having any fun? <laughs> like, I would much rather you have one match who you absolutely adore and you go out on three dates in a year and they're all banging dates, then burning yourself out with a hundred dates with people you feel meh about, you know? So I think that there, there's so much overlap between um, intuitive living and all these lessons that we're learning. And I hope that people take them with them when all of this is over. Yeah, I do have that hope also. I, um, Mm. we touched earlier when we were like prepping for the call, on certain terminology that can be really damaging to people. And I find that sometimes we tend to like create better language only around Mm -hmm. specific people. And in Mm -hmm. an effort to curb that, I'd like to kind of talk to my audience about what is better language that we should all be using all of the time that is Mm -hmm. sensitive and that is inclusive. And if you can Tell us some terms that are probably good terms to start using instead of other terms that sure. we've probably heard before. That would be amazing. Sure. Yeah. So like, so I work a lot with people in the fat positivity community and I also work with a lot of people in the body positivity community. And what people don't really know is that if you look on Instagram and you look through all these body positive accounts, one thing you'll see many of them have in common, they are thin white women who are showing off their one belly roll. Fucking congrats. Like it's just, which is so unfortunate because this movement was started 
by people in black and brown bodies, by people who are disabled, um, who are in the disability community, people who are in larger bodies. And it's those three groups of people asking to be treated like humans. And so it became this like weird self-love catch-all, but actually it is a social justice movement started by people who do not look like me. And I am a uh, straight-sized cis, uh, not hetero, but like I'm a cis woman. So, um, but this this movement was created for people who didn't have access to spaces. You can still be discriminated discriminated against for being in a larger body in some states in our country currently. So fat acceptance is not about being like, we should just be kinder to fat people. It's like fatter people in larger bodies have less access to housing, have less access to adequate medical care because their medical care that they are given is by a very biased medical community that doesn't study them, that doesn't hear their concerns. There are so many tales of people in larger bodies with cancer being told by doctors that any of their ailments that they're being told uh, that they're telling them about are caused by their weight. And so I am very passionate about another movement called health at every size, which means number one, we cannot determine someone's health based on how they look. And number two, their anyone's health level is not a barometer for how much hum humanity and kindness they're treated with. In the same way that we're kind to people in a small body with cancer, we should still be kind to people in a larger body that have chronic illness. End of story. It's like, I don't give a shit if there are ways to go about it um, health is not a moral issue. You can pursue health or choose not to pursue health. It doesn't matter. You still need to be treated like a human. So some terms that I uh, really like to steer away from are the terms overweight because what weight? BMI, and that's the other crazy thing, BMI is a calculator that was determined by social scientists to determine the average size of a person in a large community. I'm talking thousands of people. That math is for cities, not individual people. And so there's a lot of like weird biases and a lot of stigma and things like when we talk about our current president and we vilify him, there are a lot of things to be upset about our current leadership. One of the things we don't need to poke fun at is his body. Bodies have no morality ever. And when we start tying morality to bodies, that's what leads to shame. And shame is one thing we do not want in our bedrooms, in our boardrooms, in our family. We just, we want to get rid of that. So some terms that can inspire people to feel feelings of shame are overweight. Um, fat should be a neutral term and I feel okay using it because people in the fat community are like, yes, use it. Let's get rid of this negative stigma it has attached to it. It's just a body descriptor. We don't need to feel weird about saying the word fat. But something I also use is the term people in bigger bodies um, because that's what it is. That's At the end of the day, that's what it is. It's the same thing as someone in a tall body, someone in a shorter body, someone in a bigger body, someone in a smaller body. It's just a descriptor. So those terms, uh, morbidly obese, like fucking Nancy Pelosi just used. We don't want to use those terms anymore. Those terms aren't helpful to anybody. Those terms can also put people in larger bodies in danger because of harassment and death threats and all that shit. So 
um, yeah, but I'm, I'm still, and also I'm still learning. I'm not infallible. You know, I, I really encourage people if you want to learn more about a community that you want to be more sensitive to, to follow accounts, have your, your Instagram feed, have a wide array of people of different shapes, sizes, ethnicities, every abilities, everything. And then therefore you're not as scared to interact or talk about, you know, communities that you might not be a part of. And also listen to people when they tell you, um, you know, if you use a term and it doesn't feel good to them, listen to them and say, thank you so much for telling me that, or thank you so much for doing that. Cause it takes emotional labor to correct people. And we're still learning. We're still learning about trans folks and saying, yeah. what are your pronouns as opposed to preferred pronouns? They're just pronouns. So like, that's something I learned recently. Just say, what are your pronouns? We don't have to say anything else. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. It's really difficult because I think that, I think what comes up for people is when they are corrected, they think they're mm -hmm. being seen as a bad person or as an inconsiderate. Yes. Person. So what you're actually right. responding to is the emotion that someone said you were a bad person. But really, yes. give a fuck whether you're a good person or not. If they took the time, right. which by the way, you weren't owed to get correct, right. then why not take right. it as like, okay, I'm gonna sit with this a little longer, maybe at a different time when I'm not feeling defensive. But it absolutely all the time, especially Same. being around like a huge portion of the queer community and sexuality studies mm -hmm. um, and trans studies. And like I was mm -hmm. telling you briefly, a study that I was involved in uh, for high risk um, gay and bisexual men behavior mm -hmm. and all of the ways that every single one of those words are so biased. Uh, yes. So right. Right. Yeah, and so difficult to define. And, and even right. inside of the sex ed and sex research community, we are all finding ourselves super biased. Mind you, a mm -hmm. lot of the research communities are very privileged and of a demographic that is privileged. So like high mm -hmm. income, light skin, yes. uh, yeah. penis owning people, yes. mm -hmm. especially are the ones that tend to be high up in academia and right. are the ones that are receiving funding for research. So right. it's super complicated to kind of unpack all of that and be able to have these conversations with people who yes. don't have like the credentials, but yes. every bit as much the life experience to actually educate people on how we right. go about doing these things and creating good language. Right. Absolutely. And just to jump off of that, that the act of someone correcting you is not an act of defiance. It's an act of honoring their identity. And it is an act of, it's an act of love. Like someone, I don't want to say that in like the big capital L word, but just being like someone gives a shit enough to tell you information that you should know, you should listen. And they could very easily not correct you. And experience harm and not tell you and that is an act of them standing up for themselves and standing up for future people who come into contact with you so that you don't accidentally cause more harm um and also yeah i did a i did a uh five page feature in a print issue of playboy last summer r.i.p print playboy but it was i'm so glad that i got something in before the magazine um the print magazine no longer existed but I remember talking, I interviewed five bisexual men because I was so sick of as a, and this was at the time I was very, very single and dating a lot of men. And I love dating people in the bisexual community. I think that they think more critically about sex and dating than most people. And I think that when people refuse to date a bi man because of any weird 
like internalized by phobia number one, right? Uh, or thinking that they're promiscuous or thinking that they're going to catch something and all that. We can't even get it. I can get into STI stigma in a moment, but that's an even bigger can of worms. But I was like, are you kidding me? You are cheap. Like you are missing out. Bisexual men are the best demographic of people today. I love them. And so I sat down with five of them to be like, tell us your stories because I feel like people don't even believe that bisexual men existed or exist period. So I want to put a face to the name. I want to interview five men from all different walks of life, all different, they all look different, they're all from different parts of the country, and talk about their sex and dating experiences, talk about the discrimination and misunderstanding that they encounter and an invalidation of their sexual um, identity that they encounter on the daily. And we were talking about the term bisexual, some people finding that to be based in the binary or uh, uninclusive, like not inclusive enough. And these five bi men were like, I'm cool with it. Like, I think it's a good, good enough term. Um, to me, it just means that I'm attracted to more than one gender expression. It doesn't say what those gender expressions are. Um, and then people will be like, well, isn't that pansexual and all this stuff? And it's just like, we can argue over semantics constantly. And as long as we're not being, you know, awful to our community, um, because what I found, which I didn't anticipate, and I'm so glad that I learned now, is that bisexual people feel really alienated from the straight community. They also feel really alienated from the LGBT community, even though they are the fucking, like, third letter in that acronym. There's a whole letter, like, given to them or, you know, ascribed to them, and they can't even find solace in their own community because of this nitpicking of terms. So we don't want to use this inclusive language and this focusing on being super inclusive to the point where we're alienating and harming others. So it's just like, it's a huge thing. It's like, it's really, I, I want to be as inclusive as possible. And I also want to honor um, the identities of people around me and take it from them, what they are and are not comfortable with instead of me making assumptions is right. kind of what I, yeah. Exactly. I mean, we get to self-define. Like every word is a made-up right. word, and they have different definitions right. to different people. Yes. And a lot of times, right. the idea that we would break it down into semantics is such a privileged perspective because I didn't even understand yes. pansexuality until it was explained to me. And if I hadn't lived mm -hmm. in a community where that was explained to me, possibly bisexual would still be how I identify, right? And right. we use these labels to... Um, define people but labels are actually meant to describe they're not yes. meant to define. so because yes. same thing with the privilege of academia just because mm. you don't know a word and don't have the language for some something doesn't mean that that's not your lived experience and right it's really difficult because once you do have language for things it's like mm -hmm. the world can come alive in a different way the same way as communities shape their language to give them direction differently in life or express emotions that we don't have names for. Imagine mm -hmm. if we had names for some random emotion and how much more likely we would be to be able to identify something that to us right. may feel like confusion. Like language is so important, but it is yes. deeply rooted in privilege. So we yeah. have to recognize that just because someone doesn't have the privilege of access to language, does it mm -hmm. mean that their message isn't super, super valid? And that was something that I've written about. I wrote about for Playboy. Um, one of the things that I, I kind of heard over and over again from bisexual men in my interviews were that like 
you got to trust people at their word. And there are some people who identify as bisexual before they ultimately identify as gay and all that stuff. But like, that's their personal journey. And something really stuck with me was a friend being like, I felt like a gay man. And I also, a friend that I interviewed felt like a gay man, but I also felt like a straight man. And then when I found the term bisexual, it felt like a hat that like fit perfectly. And for me, the term heteroflexible was a term that I was so resistant to for a while, um, or, or, or bisexual rather. I was super resistant to the term bisexual. I couldn't tell you why, I just was. And then I found the term heteroflexible and was like, oh, that's my hat. Like, that's the hat that I wear. And even though someone could have an identical experience, an identical sexual repertoire as mine, and and, and consider themselves pan or bi or whatever, for whatever reason, and I can't tell you why, the term heteroflexible makes so much sense for me and I love it. And, um, and we just gotta trust people when they tell us what they're feeling or what words work for them and don't work for them, just to trust them at their word because they know better than anybody else. We just need to trust people when they're using describers. They're allowed to use whatever describers they want. We're not supposed to correct people. I've had so many people correct me and be like, well, you're bi. And I'm like, that's funny. I'm not. Are you me? You don't know, you know? So. Yeah, I hear you. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Uh, That story about the hat that fits really resonates with me. Similar. I was like, am I straight? And I loved little boys. Mm -hmm. I was totally into this one little boy, but there was this girl that I was, just couldn't stop thinking about. And I didn't realize that I didn't have to pick, right? I was like, what camp am I on? Right. I had a gay uncle. So it was like, you can be gay. Yeah. That's it. You're gay. So right. I totally resonate right. with that. I do want to jump off and we don't have a ton of time left, mm-hmm. at least on this, but we'll have to mm-hmm. definitely continue the conversation somehow. Um, yeah. I want to kind of close off on how um, sex can then become something that is part of a healing journey. Not only when it comes to eating disorders, yes, especially when it comes to like learning radical self-love, but coping also. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me some of your experience in that? Yeah, so so I think that sex can be a very healing tool in self-love and self-acceptance. And um, I'll I'll start talking about how I got into it and then I'll kind of launch into how I'm helping other people with it. But yeah, my, my recovery definitely felt excuse me, it felt like a long list of things I could no longer do, um, a long list of symptoms that I could no longer engage in. And I was like, cool, so I can't, I can't over-exercise anymore. I'm not allowed to binge. I'm not allowed to purge. I'm not allowed to restrict. I'm not allowed to do any of these things that I've been doing for six years. Like, what else is left? Those things used to be my whole life. And then I realized, oh, I really need to get connected with my body again. And so I started um, really, not experimenting, but just exploring masturbation as a self-soothing tool. And it is the earliest self-soothing tool that we're given as kids. And why can't we go back to something that makes us feel good in our bodies, something that is kind to us? I legitimately describe masturbation as a self-massage in the same way that if I have a hard day and I want to squeeze my shoulders or my neck or whatever and release some tension, I can also massage my clitoris and like bring about a feeling of joy and uh, stress relief and all that good stuff. And so if we're going to take that principle and just apply it to having 
going from solo sex, because that is what masturbation is. It's just sex with ourselves to inviting another person in on the journey and doing this kind of straddling between I'm going to give myself pleasure and prioritize my own pleasure, but I also need to care about the pleasure of another person now. Um, it can be so healing to explore your body and feel good in it. And then also explore those feelings of someone being turned on by your body of someone finding you uh, desirable and attractive and not, not in a way that we're going to define who we are or how we are um, based on if someone finds us attractive or not. But my philosophy is instead of the, the capital, the one that doesn't exist, there are multiple ones and not even as a, monog a non-monogamous individual, which I identify as, but I'm, I have also identified as monogamous, and I believe that in your home state, there are thousands of people who want to date you. In your country, there are tens of thousands of people who want to date you. And in a world of 8 billion people, there are millions of people that you could build a very healthy, kind, loving relationship with. So we don't need to focus on the scarcity mindset of it's one or no one. Um, and so I do think, and we were touching upon this too, that this fetishization of bodies can be empowering. Feeling desired feels good. It only becomes a problem when we base our entire like identity around this thing of being desired by other people. But it is, it's a healthy thing to feel desire and to feel desired by others. It is a good feeling. And um, yeah, I think that sex can be power, like absolutely powerful. I think sex can change lives. I think that there are there is validity in a myriad of different sexual experiences. I think that there have been one night stands in my life that have been life changing. I think there have been two month flings that have been valuable and wonderful. And then there have been monogamous, uh, longer term dynamics that have been, you know, have taught me a lot about myself or. Um, enrich my life in some way. And um, yeah, so I think this demonization of casual sex is really harmful because I think that there is validity and joy to be found in things that are temporary. Because at the end of the day, everything changes. Bodies change over time. Relationships change over time. You hopefully are growing and evolving and changing over time. And that's the, the theme of a lot of the work that I do. That's <laughs> so accepting and embracing change. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us. I'd love for you to uh, give us the spiel on where people can find you, how they can follow you, and how they can help you keep doing the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. So I'm on Instagram as Dana underscore Hamilton underscore. Um, and that's the same handle for Twitter. My website is DanaHamilton.com. I also have a Patreon where I share comedic writing and uh, writing about sex, dating, and relationships, depending upon what tier you want to be on. But at the end of the day, my heart is I am a humorist. Uh, I try to inject a lot of humor and fun into sex and dating because at the end of the day, if it's not fun, you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and yeah, so those are all the places that you can find me. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Dana Hamilton, and you can support me in my work that way. That's amazing. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you, Sarah. This has been another podcast of Haven Space. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Haven Space by Sarah and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Haven Space by Sarah.
If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a patron and helping fund more talks like this in the future.